Welcome to the Yes Indeed podcast created by Max Shepherd and run by me Thomas Manuel. This episode is brought to you by my lovely patrons Aaron Lim, Ronan McNamee, DBL, Bill Cohen, Matthew Lowe, Sammy and Michael S Miller. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to join my patrons head over to patreon.com/indiarpg. With that said, roll tape. Welcome everyone. I'm sitting here with Tan Shahan. Shahan is a TTRPG designer, writer and cultural consultant from Singapore. He's contributed words to various Paizo Pathfinder books including Lost Omens, Impossible Lands, the new Dagger Isle supplement from Blades in the Dark as well, and various other indie games like Monster Care Squad, Ark, and a game that we both contributed to blood clot he is the co-founder of curious chimeras a company based in singapore that makes games and game adjacent interactive experiences shahan also has this very cool academic background his master's thesis was on ttrpgs and how they help people kind of engage with complicated subjects empower them you know with language skills and generally kind of their role in education or their potential role in education so i'm excited to talk to him about all of these things welcome shahan how are you how are you doing this morning Oh, th- thank you Thomas. Thank you for inviting me here and for well doing all the labor to set everything up, right? And like I'm um, feeling great this is a Monday morning and I feel as though I'm ready to go and make bad decisions for another week. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah. I listen to another podcast you were on and I know that you kind of got started gaming through I think maybe AD&D second edition or like D&D 3.3 yeah. 3.5 that kind of thing. What is the story there? Who put those books oh. in your hands? The grubby little mitts, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ah. So, okay, I guess there's like three kind of things I can remember from my very misty records in my head. Like <laughs> one is actually I was I didn't actually have access to a lot of these books because they were they are were really expensive and yeah. I started picking up in the in the nineties and I was in secondary school. Basically, I was supposed to do things like prepare for the O levels, but uh, you know that that didn't work out very much. So th- there was an era of times where like you know there was this company called SSI, right, Strategic Simulations Inc. and they were doing all kinds of video game adaptations for the OTSR D and D stuff, the AD and D stuff. So you had things like. The Dragonlance books would get basically MS DOS games, right? I end, end up at a bargain bin and I bought photocopied manuals of these games. I didn't even have those games. I just bought the manuals of those games for I think a buck or two dollars, and I just went back and I was like, all right, there was no game, but inside there are all the things like mystical things like to hit armor class zero, aka tackle, right? And then they have like things like strength, dexterity, constitution, and then. spell lists and descriptions right and while there wasn't a lot to go on with just stayed in my house for a while so I, i didn't think about it then the second part of the story comes from me actually meeting people who played D&D and they had all the nice fancy hardcover second edition and i mean AD&D was a time of like immense supplement bloat right that's that's the model the white wolf emulator is like everybody had a handbook like you know the ninja's handbook the wizard's handbook the conjurer's handbook oh no the diviner's handbook and the rich kids had all the books and i was like i want to i want to play dnd on a run dnd but i don't have dnd now so wait a minute i have this bunch of manuals and uh It was a very OSR kind of approach, I guess. It's like you had a spell list there, but you don't really know how much damage it does, so you just make it up as you go along, <laughs> yeah. and then you're like, "All right, it's a it's level six. I think you should do more than level one here." And that was pretty much my my introduction to D and D. Knowing that people played it and having 
mostly the rich kids played it and the rich kids also only invited each other so you had everyone there with like I was like envying the Battletech setups the huge tables and Singapore is a tiny country so you can't really do this very easily inside our shoebox apartments I just basically went back took some paper and basically tried to make D&D happen from old game manuals, old pirated game manuals and that was my life in as a teenager and only when I started getting into my young adulthood and suddenly third edition came out and everybody wanted to play third edition, third edition became a bit cheaper because they were promoting the big three main books in the box set and I guess the OGL modularity made it such that you could just hack anything on your own inside there and that's pretty much how I started. So you're saying that you bought these video game manuals, do you remember the exact the, the exact video game yeah 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 it was, it was, it was actually the Dragonlance ones you know like the dragons of spring something and then like there was okay. the Pools of Radiance ones how long did you play 3.5 how long were you playing kind of just D&D what was uh, what was the first was game the, after D&D that you played so basically in about 1997 I was doing my first year of like my my A-levels I guess it's like for us and the Commonwealth system is like pretty much just two years to Nobody studies in the first year, in the second year you try to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, we all know the secrets, right? So obviously in my, <laughs> in my first year, I thought, oh yeah, two years is a long time. And so the, the first year, I, I ended up meeting a lot of friends who played. I played, I played D&D a lot then, but, but what happened was I also met a lot of friends who were playing Vampire the Masquerade. And then so I was literally in a drama club. So it was like, hey, oh no, it's those drama club kids again. <laughs> so my, my art room and drama club friends were all basically were either playing Vampire the Masquerade or D&D. And then of course from White Wolf you get you go down the, the, the cubby hole of like werewolf and mage and everything, right? But what happened was like was not really what I was interested in that much vampire because we ended up doing a lot of LARPs and LARPs were very emotionally and financially exhausting. They you have to do a lot of like my, my costume co- costume work yeah. and everything and my house was beginning to look like a like the backstage of a of an old Masi theater and <laughs> I was like, you know, graph paper and maps seem a lot less hard to work. Like, I don't have to carry like, you know, like fifty dollars worth of like fabric everywhere to run the game basically. And so ironically after I did play more vampire, I ended up Treating D&D as my relaxation game I think the longest thing I ran was Monte Cook's Return to the Temple Elemental Evil And I just ran it as a mega dungeon For I had no idea how long And after I finished that game I was like I'm actually a little bit sick of Greyhawk and, 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 and the realms and whatever So and that's when I actually picked up I think the first one that I actually picked up was I think Exalted That was from also from White Wolf as well yeah. And then I was like okay this one is getting a bit more like familiar over to like I guess my cultural identity And my, the kind of tropes and themes So there were a lot of Asian connections going on there But around the time I started going to college and I ended up majoring in Southeast Asian Studies And so whenever I was in the lecture theatres listening to reading about architecture, archaeology, I was like, this will make a pretty cool dungeon. And then I started kind of like going over into the indie spaces from there because I was like, uh, you, get, you get exposed to a bit of Edward Said that you're like, oh no, everything's already delicious. Like, <laughs> and so it's like you wanted to just make things of your own. And so I guess it's really when I was in my 25, 26 phase when I started doing my uh, undergrad into my postgrad and I started having a little bit more space to work on indie games but finding players was the hard thing I would basically go to groups play with people playing D&D and it's like hey we would like to play some small thing that, that people are like what's this small thing oh no it's going to be some of those drama club things <laughs> like, you know, and, then like, and so I ended up like I kind of had to 
we played third edition, fourth edition, and it was it got to the point where playing indie man playing like Warhammer IP stuff. That's how bad it was, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you remember playing being indie was playing White Wolf and Warhammer <laughs> and stuff. Okay, so yeah, there's a couple of things I want to pick on from that. I think I'm assuming this is if we pull this thread, we will quickly get to you know why you co-founded Curious Chimeras and that story there. But yeah. Just but before that, I would love to talk about this thing you said about okay. You're going. You're going to university. You're doing your masters in Southeast Asian studies, or, or, or sorry, yeah. your undergraduate degree itself yeah. yeah. would have had that yeah. in it. And you're kind of asking yourself this question of like, what does um, gaming in my kind of local context look like? And that, I feel like that's a question yeah. that is that's with you till today, right? Like that's the same yeah, kind yeah, of question yeah. that's driving you. Yeah, I'd yeah. love to know like what what were your first attempts at trying to. Uh, merge gaming and you know, Singaporean culture, or and how that's okay. kind of changed today. Okay, so actually, I was pretty bad at history when I was a when I was a kid in the world. I was my crowning achievement is getting a teacher so mad that she singled out my test paper for bringing it out to the stage, and I had I got caned for it. I don't know, oh no, content warning, corporal punishment. <laughs> but it's like you know, for those who want to come from the shadows of the British school empire, I'm sure we understand. I think in the test paper when I was a 14 or 15 year old kid I wrote that Raffles was a deadbeat who didn't care about things and left in the hands of somebody else who did and then all these guys were fueled money was fueled by sex work and drugs anyway like you know there's nothing great about colonialism and then like uh, the teacher got so mad at me said you're right but you can't say these things like this you still have to follow the textbook right I just got very bad grades but in in universities I was sitting down at a course I think it was an introduction to Southeast Asian Studies class and so for my school it doesn't matter what major you take whether you're engineering or business you have to pick something from what they call Asian studies quota so you have a few, a few units inside there and some of it will be like East Asian studies Southeast Asian studies South Asian studies and I got into this because I was just like it was purely a lazy thing I was like alright so I'm in Southeast Asia I don't think I need to do that much work right I think it was actually exposed to I was exposed to there was one particular thing inside which is in the Thai rendition of the Ramayana of the Ramakian in Thai there's a very different emphasis place and I got very interested by how retellings of a story can be give things new life uh. so for example in the Ramayana so like Hanuman basically decides to s- swim around and he basically figures let's see how to get a Lanka right he's doing his gather information phase in the Blitz game right in the Ramana he's this very virtuous and very like like you know this role his dharma is the most important thing I gotta do this or I gotta do my job right yeah. and in, in the Ramana basically he hangs out there he, he ends up meeting the mermaids and then he ends up uh I think like fathering a lot of children there and then so you have this half mermaid half monkey character who has his own side story of trying to get his parents approval and he becomes this great hero and then yeah, I'm just like hmm what's happening there and then also <laughs> yeah. like there's this in the class there was like this kid who was from a Brahmin background and this Brahmin cast kid he was like this is not the way it's done yeah. brothers right and I was just like oh that's, that's kind of like D&D right that's kind of RPGs in which like you have one character and then five people it's a fractal everybody sees and imagines different things and so I was like thinking wait if this is the case for one story around me then what about a lot of other stories and then I think the thing that hit most was when we went into the part on Ravana and they emphasized quite a bit on how he was treated quite badly in heaven and he had to wash people's feet and like you know people kind of kicked him around and he got so pissed off that he was like begging for the ability to point at people and finger of death them right the story is retold, reimagined you get so many different nuances to it and 
that's when the TTRPG medium to me was like, hey, because you know there isn't an external sensor telling me what I can or cannot do. And as long as your little group of five or six people are happy with something, everybody gets away with a lot more cultural freedom and creative freedom than let's say even making a zine or something which uh, somebody can stop the presses, right? But you're like just there speaking. The trade-off, of course, is that it doesn't survive like as an oral tradition. But uh, I just thought, hey, this is maybe something I really wanted to work on. And looking at all this so-called like uh, Southeast Asia, South Asia, there's all these epics that transform and shape and become new things, right? And I thought, hey, you know, we have a lot of cultural ballast here, so to speak. I don't have to keep looking to... I'm, I'm sure you heard this before. We don't have to keep looking to three X structures, and we don't have to look at the monomyth. And that's what was being subjected to me when I was a high school student. You know, the Joseph Campbells, and oh, you have to basically carry on the the tradition of. European storytelling. That's so interesting. I mean, for you know, people who aren't aware, the, the Ramayana is a kind of uh, South Asian epic. It's like a Hindu epic. It exists in various forms. Even within India, there are like multiple versions of it. Yeah. And then now, obviously, like, when right. it spreads to Southeast Asia, it changes there. And, and in Thailand, they have yeah. the Ramakien, which is, again, like extremely fascinating and completely different. Uh, this Hanuman anecdote, because, because the way I see <laughs> epics like the Ramayana and the Mahabharata is that like for a long time like in sort of Indian storytelling or whatever if you were a storyteller you would tell the same stories right like you'd go from like village to village or whatever and you'd be like (coughs) sharing stories and you'd share stories from these two epics because they're your cultural literature or whatever but how would you express like your own personality right you'd go like okay this is a story that you all know but did you know this real story behind this (laughs) character and then you just put your own stuff there and everyone's doing this constantly so while you have this like one story that everybody's telling you also have these like million like little additions to it because nobody wants to say the same thing and the cool thing is that you can hide behind that this is some unbroken thread all the way from Valmiki to you right now, right? <laughs> yeah. But then actually you're like you know, putting in like, hey, you know, some stuff is out here that you may not have heard of. Here's a secret sauce, basically. For in Southeast Asia, there were depictions that it's not a culturally important place. Uh, there's a lot of stereotypes that emerge, right? So when the English came into Southeast Asia, they traveled first through India and then like they were like oh okay this is kind of like the knockoff India right then the, oh the sinning influence was here but this is a knockoff China and so I was as a Southeast Asianist I was very like hey you know I want to make my own thing I want to basically be able to prove this that Southeast Asia is a cultural area deserving of its own interests and as I grew older, I realized that there was an impossibility because in my head, Southeast Asia means very different things across, right? Like from the highlands to the lowlands, some highlander who is like, get your stinking city thoughts out of my area will not be very happy to hear me. I want to represent Southeast Asia. No, no, go away. You're just another colonialist, right? Yeah, but then like maybe to uh, Americans, uh, Southeast Asian descent person will be like, oh, okay, it's good to find hear things for myself. So I think it's really cool that I have this constant doubt because I think it keeps me honest a little bit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think, and that's completely like an external thing, right? Like, growing up in your context, it's not natural to go like, I represent every viewpoint from my society. Like, that would never come naturally yeah, yeah, yeah. because of this kind of external pressure to be like, you represent your country, right? It's a like, it's like beauty pageant. It's like, oh, Mr. Singapore. <laughs> from hearing that, I'm, I'm already seeing the kind of struggle, right? I'm getting into this from the viewpoint of like history or myth or whatever. Mm. And now, when you want to put that stuff in games, 
in one sense if it's your home game or whatever that that's a very easy thing to do and that can kind of come naturally mm. but when it comes to game design or publishing you have to kind of wrestle with nationalism i assume it's the same in singapore in india definitely there's kind of this fascistic no, we, attempt we, we, to we control listen. mythology uh, have you used mythology and history like in your games when you write for other publications are you drawing on that stuff because i know your own yeah, work yeah. you're working on a forge in the dark game that is much more grounded and i tell me if i'm wrong but i think it's grounded because i'm guessing you don't want to go into something explicitly mythological or historic my household is very much like i guess it would be there's a mix of chinese ancestor worship and buddhism and taoism so a syncretic mix that a lot of southeast asian chinese tend to have and when i grew up there was this constant sense that i was not quote unquote modern enough all right so i think this is going to be a pressure that a lot of us in the so called again the global south quote unquote feel is like especially in the challenges of i guess nationalization nationalist movements and modernist fervor and the desire to make religious things extremely technical and rational especially when the west context let's say the chinese and the indian tradition and the japanese tradition and they kind of cherry pick certain things that really mix with them so everybody will tell you oh do you know that einstein was a big believer in buddhism so that's the kind of thing that you know you grew up with right like then you like there's this like a, almost a desire to simp over to the west like all right please please like our ancient wisdoms right and then the people managed to go to the west go to san francisco the, the swamis and the gurus and the, and the monks right would be usually english educated as well they would basically have the ability to then depict the canon as being something that's extremely non-mystical extremely based on principles this this looks like philosophy this this looks safe this doesn't look like some like you know some spirit shit basically right and then for me a lot of, a large part of it is actually me trying to come away from this because I'm a college educated kid right so it's kind of like i guess i will be the target audience for believing in non-religious kind of very contemporary very friendly over the humanism kind of idea of oh this is just a philosophy a way of life there's no superstition involved this very progressive modernist kind of look right and for me that 20th century vibe kind of like didn't feel quite right uh, because i'm already kind of fighting against a lot of like colonial impulses right and there's something inside that that seemed a little bit destructive in which i i would look at a shrine there would be a tree shrine and then if i was to adopt this mindset it would be saying oh okay this whatever this local tree divinity is it doesn't actually matter there's no place in buddhism for these superstitions right and so i just felt like hey wait wait i think part of it actually that comes down from actually listening and looking at things that aren't actually written down and kind of just like emoting kind of like and fig- figuring out what people do there so in singapore i kind of like just fell into this rabbit hole and if you look at my work i think the first one that i would like to kind of bring reference to this is a game called shrine and that that game basically came out because of the rpgc there was this project called our shores i think and just to bring sam uh and sin pams as well as wakins games over in the kickstarter through sandy park games to 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 the world right and the stretch goal was create something and I was going going through a lot of things then because my mother-in-law passed away then and I was supposed to write some friendly thing on cooking and community and then I was like death <laughs> everything is death right? <laughs> and then like it was a sort of ghost month going on then and I was uh, really behind time then I just spoke to my co-chimera Alana I said hey can I just add necromancy to everything and she said yeah sure go ahead so I ended up creating that right and because there's a lot of stories here in I guess in Asia of like gods that are highly specific to an area right and shrine is pretty much about people who are ghosts who died and then the local community turns them into gods because they are afraid that if they were to run around their 
anger will be too great and maybe people pity their circumstances of their death and their life and then give them a new resting place. I guess I already wanted to have this focus on gods that did not start as gods and gods that were not created by priests or books but gods that emerged out of, I guess, life's experiences. And this is a bit selfish because it's humans, the worshippers, imposing their desires and anxieties onto a group of dead people and saying, hi, you were a dead person, now could you make sure that I... I get a job and the guys are quite sure I'd be interested in your life but but then in that way they become part of the community fabric and that was something I was interested in like basically that's something that even in academic writings a lot of times it gets ignored especially in so, uh, people are searching for the big holy scriptures people are looking for iconography of powerful deities that stretch back thousands of years but a uh, few people think about somebody's grandma who was supposed to have psychic powers and upon death people say she can cure fever you know and then like, if you see a white mongoose say it's a symbol of her blessing in your dream or something and, and for me just really idiosyncratic things was like I felt all across the world not just here in Southeast Asia and Singapore but there must be so many stories like that that kind of get forgotten or deliberately pushed down or maybe if you can see it but it's get ridiculed as not true not relevant compared over to what some dude has written in a book about what gods are supposed to be right so i just felt like hey you know maybe i wanted to have a bit of that and that's pretty much shrine it's a, it's a game where you play a bunch of ghosts in, and the ghosts have now been promoted into godhood and then you're trying to help a community but all your psychological and emotional triggers and traumas from being ghosts in the first place might come out and may cause you to make the story into a, invite you to bring the story darker but you also can try to help bring the story towards a more transcendent ending and another game that the first one I made was called uh, Mere Gods and it doesn't sell very well but I'm quite okay with it because the perspective is essentially your people in a small village and there's a deva who falls down from heaven because he pissed off another deva and then the villagers basically take care of this deva like oh yeah let's just put him inside here and take care of him you know and then you have other gods coming down like why are you sheltering somebody who is evil all of you must be punished as well and basically you have these people who are in a small rural town and they are by all accounts pious nice people and they are being tortured by terrible people and you play basically people from the village trying to get the safety or chase away these people right and part of it was me growing up in the 2000s as an adult observing the effects of the America's war on terror on Asia I think and I basically just saw a lot of war hawks come over to Southeast Asia and were saying things like this place is full of terrorists and I'm like you don't speak the local language what do you know man <laughs> and I think that's the reason it doesn't sell well because the demon is essentially empire basically it's empire but it doesn't even have the satisfying comforting empire of like oh this is empire two centuries ago for me it's like this is contemporary empire right and so people get very withered up because like, oh what do we do to win like you know it's a treasure and i'm like uh, i don't know it and this is my first one so it's a little less polished as a result and i guess the emotions and the artistic voice is a bit more like raw in a sense yeah i hope that made sense yeah <laughs> no i mean <clears throat> that's a great answer and i'm Seeing all those themes, I, I really do want to discuss your in-development forged in the dark game. Yeah. So my, my game, the context of it is set in 1940s, is uh, in the World War II. Before the Second World War, Singapore, my, my homeland is actually was a British colony. And it remained a British colony up to the, after the Second World War. But during the Second World War, there was an interruption of 
imperial powers there was a shift away because it became an imperial Japanese imperial holding so it kind of changed hands during that time and for me I grew up with the stories and I didn't actually really care about the stories care much for the stories because I was like ah it's ancient history etc so for me I come from a Chinese speaking household my Mandarin is terrible was terrible my Mandarin only became better after I started uh, working with more people from China but uh, I didn't feel very connected to so called any Asian roots as to speak and it's the, it's all these post colonial tensions right it's like you know you grow up thinking that the language of power english is the best language etc so i i can't grow with that and even literary traditions locally there's this very strong emphasis to portray singaporean literature as being english dominated literature and when you have english dominated literature not only are you having that particular linguistic tradition there you also have certain thought patterns that come in with as baggage right and the big baggage was memories of the second world war so for the chinese in singapore we have a lot of different migrant migration flows the most powerful and wealthiest chinese in singapore tend to come from what are called the streets chinese or the anglo chinese some of them are english citizens they own rubber tin plantations and they basically have a lot of resources that connect over to international british trade and then you have the much the big wave of other chinese you have a lot of peasants who come in unlettered uneducated fleeing from war in china to become like the miners and the rubber tappers right and during the second world war a lot of these rubber tappers and miners basically some of them were run off to basically become soldiers to fight against the japanese in the sino japanese war because their main identity is still okay they were thinking of themselves as chinese and the anglo chinese the ones the british subjects they were also spend money to fight against the japanese imperial forces right but when the japanese came they were like pissed off at all these chinese people so they were like all right let's kill all these guys all right so there was a big basically a huge ethnic cleansing of a lot of like Chinese men and teenagers who looked like they could be soldiers as revenge for supporting the Chinese armies. That was history. I didn't really think too much about it. But as I was doing more and more, more research into this subject, I found that a lot of voices were Anglo-Chinese in nature. And that has to do with the fact that in the 50s when the Cold War came in, suddenly communism all across the south was the biggest threat to NATO, right? So suddenly everybody squash basically non-english voices and the english educated elites across southeast asia tend to have a kind of a free play to basically dominate culture literature and and heritage so that's something that grew up in my primary school in my o levels that's what they write down like people suffered they were eating tree bark to survive right and as you do some research you you find some material culture from the past you find menus like people eating like e- eating and spending huge amounts of money because they were very rich suddenly and then you have to think how did these people get rich right then you look at it, oh they became a wartime collaborator or maybe they were like doing things like they were slum lords because they knew people couldn't pay so they increased the rents everything and of course it's not good for a nation to emphasize these things from a nationalist perspective because you want to create national unity right but for me I just said hey there's like so much untapped story potential that I want to explore and that's what my fortune in dark game can works on is that instead of having this whole all right this is war time but I'm not fighting against like it's not it's not a British versus Japanese fight because that will basically be much suited maybe to a miniatures war game that I'm sure someone has really made right this fortune that book actually is semi funded by my government so the library and archives of my country they have this project which is please use our country's archival and library resources to create artwork inspired by these things and so a lot of my work for this fortune that game Tasia is inspired by reading a lot of microfilms listening to a lot of oral history records and one thing to not 
make a world based on all those things, but create a world that is a little bit more in spirit, closer to and more sincere to what people's lived experiences are. One where language was, was a bit different because I'm speaking English and my Chinese dialects, are, I'm not great at them. My Malay is not great, but I want to kind of like push away from this very Anglophone imagining of the past. As, you, know, you know how it is, right? You, know, you watch a show and everybody's speaking in received pronunciation and then everybody is like talking well of like the Queen and everyone's saying, like, oh, you know, the British are great, etc. There's something going on here, right? Yeah, so for me, I'm just like, okay, what if there are people who are uneducated and they are like, you know, they, they, they basically, yeah, they're peasants, but they are peasants and they're not necessarily things like communist, socialist heroes, or whatever. They're just people on their own. Like, this is not right. Somebody down the street is, is suffering and let's do something. Because the stories are still now, it's like, oh, everybody was out for themselves. It was desperate. And that's why the government comes in to protect us from ourselves. And I was like, hey, wait, what if people help themselves rather than needing an empire, a nation, everything, right? And so it's a bit of a simulation of, I guess, community during wartime and in a period of time when there was no national as of yet. Now that's really fascinating. Soon as I hear the premise of, of Dacia, which is, you know, a Japanese occupation of, of Singapore, you've got Chinese, the working class Chinese, you've got the upper, the middle class Chinese, the class that doesn't suffer. Yeah, it's a very small dynamics. class, I'm yeah. sure, that doesn't suffer as much. And hear that and I'm like, this maps very well onto Blades in the Dark to some extent. Because Blades in the Dark is this very like, yeah. it does talk about class to some extent. A lot of people find it very persuasive even I do but this idea of like oh I get to play some kind of like working class London criminal named named Jimmy half fingers or whatever yeah. like that's that's nice taking that and like putting it in this in this context uh, because every game has to answer that question of what do the players do right like what is this a game about your game is sort of moving away from okay these working class people they're not doing crimes like that's not the f- sum total of yeah. how we conceive of their options or whatever but they're sort of like folk heroes right would you describe it as kind of like there is a kind of like mythic quality to the storytelling where it's yeah yeah weird. to echo off an earlier point i made about i think like the unnamed gods of like small shrines and like the so-called folk religion, right? But there is a certain kind of like, within Chinese media, there's this, there's this obsession with uh, wuxia, which is until very recently considered lowbrow literature in the sense that when I was a kid, I do remember my aunts and uncles like, oh, don't read wuxia. Wuxia is like basically pop. And now now somehow it's become like a bit more rarefied. Yeah. And it's like, you know, okay, now it's okay to read it. Right? It was serialized newspaper stuff or it was like, you know, like really grotty paperbacks, right? So, but... There's this whole thing about in all these books, which is a hero. There are heroes who might not fit very easily into social expectations of what is proper. And they might, for example, be landed nobles who do not become rich. Maybe they spend all the time drinking, practicing martial arts, pining over lost loves that they cannot have and being all long-haired and melancholic and great for player characters. Okay, you have like some hero who is like, you know, uneducated but has a heart of gold and where everybody is scared of facing the authority, they do not fear the authorities because moral instincts and intuitions are that strong, right? And so in Wuxia, there's this emphasis on the this romantic figures, right? And uh, when I look at my historical past of like Singapore, even though we are in Singapore, it's like 70 to 80% Chinese, maybe even more. There isn't really a very strong emphasis inside our Chinese community of folk heroes because in a very strong way, there's a very strong emphasis here on not looking for heroes within our own people. All the heroes instead are like huge nationalist heroes or huge people who are iconic in things. And so for me, this mythic quality for Tasia is I'm basically asking people to imagine 
the decolonization method is what if heroes aren't wearing uniforms, aren't unwell-shaved, aren't basically speaking in English, or what if they are basically somebody's grandpa, basically, <laughs> what if they're somebody's grandma? And there's like all these kind of small stories which basically, because they'll be un unremembered, Chinese media TV might talk about them a little bit more, but there's still a very strong emphasis on making them, making our ancestors victims. Like, all right, three years of war for of occupation occurred and we just had a stiff upper lip and we just endured it stoically and we, we gave a good fight, but you know, who could have predicted things would go this way? Oh, you know, so bad. And then 1945 then, all right, then nation, post-nationalism, and then, all right, we just erase out any kind of active voice in people. So my work is mythic in a sense and imagination-based because I'm not going by, this is the history of what people did, but this is more like, a, could we imagine the past as one where people, especially the working, even, even upper class was more active in what they did. And definitely it's a time of mixed loyalties because some people are loyal to the Taiwanese government, some people are loyal to the Chinese government, some people are loyal to the, to, to the British, some people are loyal to the Australian High Commission and everything. And uh, I also made it such that the Japanese soldiers were not necessarily necessarily always the antagonist because there's still a very strong urge for Chinese language because of the historical trauma of like to this day the it's still unresolved right if I can just encourage people to go and use all these public access resources to read more about in this case my country's past maybe look at their own country's past and there's we could excavate a lot more voices right I mean there are Japanese players who told me that hey this was interesting because this was very different from what the right-wing revisionists want to say right then when you listen to Americans talk about this, they usually are very surprised that we have still have so much trauma in Asia between Asians because I think sometimes American media thinks that all Asians somehow magically are on the same. <laughs> I think as a Southeast Asian, as a diasporic creator who is able to navigate and negotiate like Western spaces, Northern spaces, while not being Northern or Western, I think that's something that I am trying to work with super excited about this game like when you have a playtest document that you want somebody else to run mm. you should you should definitely send it over and yeah maybe we can move on to this kind of yeah. last section because i'm looking at the time okay. here so i have some questions yeah. i ask everybody who comes on the show so the first the mm. first question is in a in a section titled infectious enthusiasm i ask what's a mm. game that you've had a lot of fun with and you want to recommend i think actually the thing that got me like kind of like rekindled my love for ttrpgs in the last maybe seven years or so it's actually one of like johnstone medzger's games the nightmares underneath like which is pretty much his hi what if this was Warhammer basically shift the camera away from Europe to basically the, the caliphate and what if we basically had a different this is a sociological thing about how you cannot actually remove the in Warhammer it would be the warp right it would be like demons and everything but here it's kind of like this psychic connection over to a nightmare dimension and the more the more bright and shiny society is the more of this unconscious terrorist exists, right? It's all done through this self-contained, standalone one book. And there's a lot of love and passion in what he puts into his work, right? And for me, in, I think 2016 or 2017, I played one session and I fell really deep into the, into the, hey, let's make OSR stuff because I got so inspired by that. And that's before I found out like, yeah, you know, like that's the OSR space has its own 
own things yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. that, that's the subject of another podcast I'm sure <laughs> that was a sort of period of time that I was running a lot of 5th edition D&D Adventure League games and I was basically going to people like hey would you like to try this game and the rules are free and I just went around doing this games and because in Singapore we have a sizable it's a, I mean ultimately in Southeast Asia there's a sort of Muslim population here right so suddenly for a lot of my Muslim friends having the chance to play in, in a fantasy game where essentially Islamic values in a sense for example civilization order and community education and like this and not this I guess a recent style of like a hyper religiosity right it was something interesting to be like hey you know we could there's this cosmopolitan caliphate era period right where everybody was looking and of course in the west we had the middle ages and everyone's looking to the, to the middle east and like oh you know these places are also advanced <laughs> these places they have, have like you know they have, air, they have air conditioning they have ice cream oh my god faluda this is amazing right? and like being able to do that was what basically made me feel very happy about TTRPGs for a while. Actually, it got me playing Blades in the Dark from there yeah. because he had Iruvian Blades, I think. I yeah, think Johnson yeah, Metzger yeah. made a bunch of playbooks and, and then I was like, hey, I can see the I can see sort of like the DNA from, from TNU into that as well. That is a great answer. Thank you so much. In, in a section titled Tyranny of Numbers, I ask, what is a number or statistic uh, that you can share that you think will be useful? Okay, I'll use my social science background last week to cook up numbers for you, all right? So, like, I basically put two units of econometrics to good use, all right? So, I like, like, cook, cook the numbers, all right? So, like, so uh, I think, like, in my current playtest of past, yeah, one of the statistics that emerges is actually, I would say that it's a, it's, it's a rather amazing number that came out because I hold playtest sessions and a whole lot of debriefing sessions so actually like I expected a lot of people to basically ask questions like why do you take such aesthetic choices? Are you a commie scum? <laughs> I expected this kind of questions, right? I expected like questions about like but why is this such a Chinese centric story? Are you a Chinese chauvinist? And I expected questions like this right but zero percent had no questions like this at, at all and instead there were a lot of people instead who said oh you know that was something that was totally almost like a spot that they did not consider at all as being gameable or storifiable nobody complained about what i thought people complained about but maybe it's because it's a self-selecting crew right when i put a public playtest and people come in they are already okay with this in a section titled replay i ask what's a story or anecdote about your game about someone playing your game that you'd like to share so this is less of someone playing my game but I think so back to mere gods right so very early on I think I passed one of my playtest copies to Vididia to Voletti right they looked at it and they were like I have played some uh, Tamil names inside there and he were, they were like very excited to basically see that and there were also some Khmer names inside there as well and then there was also somebody else who wrote in to me saying that they showed this to their family or friends and they did not expect to see Khmer names inside a book basically and so I would like to put in some things here that kind of like show Southeast Asia's complexity of like migration flows right yeah. and so I think hearing people tell me that so I think just the choice of names just a choice of words right just a choice of concepts right yeah that's very nice thank you for sharing that I have one more question and the section is called all advice is advice for myself and I ask mm. what's a habit or technique you're trying to get better at doing when you're at the table playing games 
Mm, I think one of the things that I can feel is actually user experience. I mean, it's a perennial GM problem, right? So I was like running Bender Blades and I was like, yeah, this makes sense. Let's do this Excel spreadsheet thing, man. And then the players are like, oh my God, it's terrifying. What are we doing? Why do we have spreadsheets, you know? And then, and then I'm like, okay, all right. So what do you do? And I, you know, let, let's count the clocks, right? And I realized that actually when you're mostly playing with game designers and you're mostly hanging around with game designers, sometimes you can think purely maybe a little bit too much for game designers and in terms of what I'm trying to improve for my user experience look is not even in terms of using natural language I think some some, some game writers speak a lot of the beauties and joys of natural language like like I think like Luca React talks a lot about natural language sometimes and I think Zedek as well right Zedek talks a bit a lot about like the need to basically have prose that basically flows don't orientalize or exoticize your own countries your own, own people's words and for me those are concerns but my major concern is pretty much in adjacent but different is how does a person look at this game and think about how to play it because if I look at Tasia if we go back to Jimmy Halffingers right it's like Jimmy Halffingers and his mythos right uh, occupies a pop cultural space in our mind that is easy to imagine whether it's because of games that dishonored maybe it's like TV shows and if you were to ask somebody to make shit up in a Blaze in the Dark game they'd be like alright there's a threat right the vibes but then I'm creating a historically grounded game so how does somebody who didn't spend so much time reading historical documents how are they going to make the game how do i make this compelling for a gm to basically work with how do we make it such that people do not feel intimidated to not misrepresent or whatever and how do we make it not even for players like player characters but just for gms to make such a setting playable so for me that user experience making so that i don't assume people automatically have access to the information in my brain is one of those things that i have to turn it into a book okay so what, what do i write in the book what do i spend the pages on so those are a product design and user experience is some of the things i'm trying to get better at yeah. Nice, nice. That is that's a really interesting answer. I think I think the question of like how do we play historical games, how do we make historical games accessible, is is something I am definitely thinking about a lot. And yeah. I, think, I think at least yeah. part of the answer is yeah, you just get all the history wrong at the table. It's fine. Like you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I think I, th- I think that's why I went for this mythic mythic like Wuxia thing. So that if something is wrong, this is it's all right. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. 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 All right. I think that's that's it from my questions. So, uh, okay. Shauhan, if people want to keep track of your game design, where should they follow you? Okay, so I have I have a website that's tanshawhan.com and I am also most active on my Twitter. I have my Instagram as a backup in case the blue ticks explode or implode. Like, you know, it's beginning to feel a bit like a massive comic crossover event where every month we feel the fear. Right? And <laughs> so we'll see how the two FA works out all this time. I'm basically also at Tan Han on Twitter. You can also find me through Curious Cameras, which is my other identity where I work on playable experience and that's also www.curiouscameras.com. Yeah, and that's pretty much like where you can kind of keep track of things. And yeah, that's, that's pretty much me. I'm mostly there. 